Welcome to the Climate Conversation. I am Dan Brissett, Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Sydney O'Shaughnessy. Hey, Sid, how are you doing? Hey, Dan, I'm doing well. I can't believe we're already at episode 15 of our podcast. We're almost to the 20 mark, which is crazy to me. Um, but today is just going to be another quick recap of our congressional climate camps. That's right. So we've done 15 episodes counting this one. And five of those, including this one, have been recaps of our congressional climate camp briefing series. So when we started out with this project in January, our goal was to um, use five different briefings, four different briefings actually at the time, to educate congressional staff about climate policy. And so we covered an awful lot of ground. We had lots and lots of speakers, um, real experts in their field. Uh, we started with budget and appropriations and stimulus back in January. In February, we talked about sort of the emissions profiles of the top emitting sectors of the economy. Um, in March, we took a look at uh, sort of how we got to where we are today with climate policy. We talked to a political scientist about the role of bipartisanship and compromise. Uh, and then we wrapped up what we thought was the end of Congressional Climate Camp in April by looking at what we called win-wins or double whammies, things that we could do in the near term that would give us emissions reductions and adaptation benefits. Well, it turned out that we had another idea and we decided to do a bonus episode of Congressional Climate Camp. And so that's what today is about. On March, you know, excuse me, on May 21st, uh, we hosted a one hour bonus episode or bonus session. We had two speakers, Molly Reynolds with the Brookings Institution uh, and Zach Moeller with Third Way, join us to specifically talk about budget reconciliation um, in the context uh, of what may or may not happen in Congress over the summer and perhaps in the fall when it comes to infrastructure. So Molly and Zach are both experts. Um, Molly um, comes at it from a political science perspective. Zach worked for uh, Kent Conrad and other members on the budget committee in the Senate. Uh, and combined, um, they're, they really presented a very, very thorough overview of what reconciliation means, what it looks like, how it works, um, and with any luck, uh, helped staff understand um, sort of what the process looks like and how they can use the process potentially to advance their boss's priorities when it comes to climate policy. So there's been some news since we recorded climate camp number five. Um, there is some speculation that maybe reconciliation will not be available um, for infrastructure, but I think uh, there's a lot of uncertainty remaining about what will or won't happen um, over the summer. So um, regardless, uh, I think this is a great session. I learned so much. Um, while it is nice to have shorter briefings from time to time, to be honest, I could have talked to Molly and Zach for hours and hours and hours about this stuff. And I really enjoyed the conversation. And I think you will too. Yeah, definitely. And you know, for the purpose of this episode, we are just going to go through our budget reconciliation highlights and um, something that I really wanted to make a note of is that the presentations, there were only two of them in this bonus, this bonus congressional climate camp. And 
we did that on purpose so that there would be a lengthy question and answer component to the briefing. So we're not going to go into the Q&A in this podcast for you, but I highly recommend going to our YouTube or going to our website and checking out the Q&A to get a further understanding of what budget reconciliation means and especially what it means for climate policy. Um, So I think just like we always have done in the past, we are just going to start cutting in some highlights from the two speakers. Like Dan mentioned, our first speaker was Molly Reynolds. She was a she is a senior fellow um, at Brookings, and she really gave a big picture overview of budget reconciliation. She looked at it historically and in a contemporary context. So here she is breaking down the basics of the budgetary process and how it came to operate the way that it does today. Um, And so the first um, thing that I I want to sort of emphasize is that budget reconciliation as conceived of in the 1974 Budget Act looks really different than what budget, how budget reconciliation came to be used in the 1980s and the 1990s. So in 1974, when Congress passed the Congressional Budget Act, that um, act called for two budget resolutions every fiscal year, one early in the year before the appropriations process, and then a second one by September 15th. It also provided for a reconciliation process that would happen alongside that second budget resolution. The idea was that Congress might not want to set binding ceilings and floors on how much it would tax and spend as part of that first budget resolution early in the year. Rather, that first resolution, the drafters of the Budget Act imagined, should be a a target. Congress should then make whatever fiscal decisions it was going to make, and then it would write a second binding resolution just before the start of the fiscal year. But if existing laws weren't in line with those new binding levels in September, Congress might need to act quickly before the start of the fiscal year. And that's how we got the special expedited procedures that the Budget Act um, provides for reconciliation bills moving to the Senate. So we know that um, part of what makes the reconciliation process so powerful is the fact that reconciliation bills cannot be filibustered. And that it, it was this, this um, this need to potentially act quite quickly, that is why um, uh, that those expedited procedures got put in, in the Budget Act in the first place. But it, it became clear pretty quickly that um, this idea of moving quickly for Congress was too quick, um, that that Congress couldn't possibly keep to this, um, this calendar. And to the extent that reconciliation was meant to also help committees reduce um, expenditures in their jurisdictions, it became clear pretty quickly that committees weren't actually that interested in in doing that. And there was little reason for the budget committees to try and force them to do so. So um, for fiscal year 1981, we saw the reconciliation process moved to be in connection to the first budget resolution. And then for fiscal year 1982 is when we get the first use of the process that looks more more like what we think of today in terms of substantive legislative change. So then we have this period in sort of the 80s and the 90s, and this is my my second bullet point here, that the the way the process was used in the 80s and the 90s really also does not look that much like it's been used more recently. Um, And in the 80s and 90s, we were generally seeing the process used for deficit reduction. um, And there was a degree when that was happening to which basically 
all of the committees were expected to share in some share the pain of um, of making cuts. Um, and so ever the, the idea was that one of the ways that reconciliation was powerful, in addition to the protection from the filibuster, is that it would basically require committees to buy in to um, to the this shared goal of um, of deficit reduction. And if you I'm going to go to the next slide here. If you look here, these are some tables um, from the Congressional Research Service that run from um, 1989 uh, through 2015. And you can see that in sort of the, the earlier period here, the, the, the 80s, the 90s, that um, large numbers of committees were tended to be named in the in the reconciliation instructions. So the way the process was being used was again this idea that we were going to sort of the Congress was going to had this goal they were going to try and um, uh, achieve deficit reduction but they were going to they were going to get um, lots of lots of committees to um, to, to share the, the pain um, in um, in doing so. So that was Molly Reynolds uh, with the Brookings Institution. Uh, and now we will introduce um, our second speaker, uh, Zach Moeller, um, is with the economic program at Third Way. Um, he um, uh, also gave an overview, but from the perspective of a staff person on Capitol Hill. Um, and he specifically went through uh, sort of the mechanics of reconciliation, the rules um, that Congress must play by, um, and just um, uh, really built very, very well on Molly's presentation. So with no further ado, here is Zach Muller with Third Way talking about budget reconciliation. All right. Um, so basically, I, I, my role here today is to kind of talk to you a little bit more about what's in and, and what's out of uh, budget reconciliation. And, you know, to that extent, it's it's a lot about the rules. And when we're talking about the rules, frankly, it's, it's all about the Senate. This is a very Senate-focused process. Um, the rules are, are really where they're most binding in the Senate here. Um, just very quickly, reconciliation requires a budget resolution to, to start. So, you know, the instructions that are in the budget resolution that are given to authorizing committees must be followed. And that means following the committee, the committees of jurisdiction. Um, that means meeting a savings target or not going over a cost target um, that may be in the in the reconciliation instructions. And further, these rules are are not only are they binding on the base text, they're also going to be binding when you're on the floor. Uh, amendments to the bill itself must be germane. Uh, the amendments cannot increase the deficit unless you're moving to strike a provision. Uh, and you know. Those, they're still subject to all the other rules uh, related to budget reconciliation, including the bird rule. Um, so just very briefly on the bird rule before I get in and out, because this is the thing that I think most people talk about. The bird rule itself is a surgical point of order against extraneous matter. Now, what the heck does that mean? Surgical. It is a surgical point of order. Surgical means only the offending material is, is removed. So this does not take down the whole bill necessarily point of order. A senator on the floor would raise a point of order against a provision uh, in, in, the, um, in the text or would threaten to raise such a point of order and thus it might get worked out in advance. But the point of order has a, a supermajority threshold, which means the point of budget reconciliation by not you know, getting to, to get around the filibuster becomes moot when you 
have to have a point of order that has that higher threshold. And extraneous matter is defined as it's, it's six little tests. Um, most are objective. Um, one is subjective. And these kind of create the boundaries of uh, a good chunk of what you can do. But at the end of the day, it's really about spending and, and it's about spending in tax policy. It's about budgetary changes. Uh, and that's that's going to be just a key thing going forward. Great. So we've given you those high level highlights from our two speakers. But if you do want to dive in further and learn more about this process, I really do recommend checking out our full recording online at ESI.org slash briefings. Um, you can read the highlights, you can get access to the speaker bios and presentation materials, and you can check out that Q&A, like I mentioned at the beginning. Um, there were a lot of really interesting questions and answers that came up during that discussion. Yeah, it's um, like Sid said, you know, we, um, while it would have been nice to continue talking with them, we did want to try to fit in as much discussion in that one hour time slot. So I definitely encourage everyone to go check out the archive. Um, and of course, as always, um, the presentation materials are posted online. You can view everything at www.eesi.org. Um, and, uh, you know, even if you may not want to watch the entire thing, um, you can just play it back and listen to it. I encourage everyone to do that. It was a great session and really a, um, just a really great way to wrap up Congressional Climate Camp. Uh, we'll see what we do next, uh, the second session of the 117th Congress next year. Um, but it, thanks for everyone um, who stuck with us. We had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people uh, tune in uh, for the five sessions. Um, and uh, thank you so much for doing that. I hope you all found it useful. Um, and thanks also for listening to our podcast recaps, um, which uh, hopefully give you a little bit of taste um, of, uh, of what we talked about. Yes, definitely. Thank you to all of our speakers. Thank you to everyone who tuned in and joined us on this long, lengthy six-month journey. But I really do feel like it was um, a really good use of our time and effort. Um, but as always, if you want to learn more about any of our work, head to our website at eesi.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media at EESI online for all of our recent updates. Remember, the Climate Conversation is published as a supplement to our bi-weekly newsletter, Climate Change Solutions. So go to eesi.org slash sign up to subscribe. Thanks again for joining us and see you next time.